It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Pavel Andreevich, sir. Fine. Check off Pavel Andreevich. Begin shipwide mission broadcast. Yes, sir. Happy to. Ensign authorization code 95, Victor Victor 2. Authorization not recognized. Ensign authorization code 95, Victor Victor 2. Access granted. May I have your attention, please? At 2200 hours, Telemetry detected an anomaly in the neutral zone, what appeared to be a lightning storm in space. Soon after, Starfleet received a distress signal from the Vulcan High Command that their planet was experiencing seismic activity. Our mission is to assess the condition of Vulcan and assist in evacuations if necessary. We should be arriving at Vulcan within three minutes. Thank you for your time. Hork has landed, sir. Captain, gravitational sensors are off the scale. If my calculations are correct, they're creating a singularity that will consume the planet. She doesn't talk, but you need to start. Where'd you get that jacket? The other guy didn't need it. Oh? You see that red? Stands for blood. It's a symbol of the resistance. You're obviously not a resistance fighter, so take it off. Take it off! You point a gun at someone, you better be ready to pull the trigger. What's your name? Kyle Reese. Chekhov, we've been shadowing Mr. Scott. You are familiar with the engineering systems of your ship. Affirmative, sir. Good. You're my new chief. I'll put on a red shirt. 
I kicked him. Mr. Chekhov, how are we looking down there? All systems nominal, Captain. Copy that. Warp available at your command. Thank you, Mr. Chekhov. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Uh, if you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msosi at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter at Matthew Sosi. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. And we have a blog, which we'll update someday at filmsociology.tumblr.com. We started things off with a little audio tribute to actor Anton Yelchin, who, of course, passed away uh, earlier this week in a tragic accident at the age of 27. Uh, you heard three clips, one from the first J.J. Uh, Abrams Star Trek film, or, of course, he's best known as playing Chekhov, then a scene from Termination, Terminator Salvation, and then from Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, Yelchin, fascinating actor, one of those guys that he is good, even if the film necessarily is not, uh, goes all the way back. His first credit goes to an episode of ER in 2000, so in his teens. Um, probably did a couple of small parts in films like 15 Minutes and Along Came a Spider, but kind of got noticed playing the young boy Bobby Garfield in the film Hearts of Atlantis, and he got to stand... Uh, uh, acting-wise, toe-to-toe with Anthony Hopkins uh, over the year and did some TV and uh, did film appeared in films like House of D, Alpha Dog, uh, became known as the high school drug dealer in uh, the comedy Charlie Bartlett, uh, was, of course, in New one of the segments of New York, I Love You, and then in 2009, we played Chekhov in J.J. Uh, Abrams' reboot of Star Trek. Uh, we already mentioned that followed up with Terminator Salvation. Um, probably my favorite performance it was as a teenager in love in the in the romantic drama Light Crazy, which also featured a young Jennifer Lawrence, a smart romantic film, not sappy like certain novel based off of certain novels. Uh, also played Mel Gibson's son in The Beaver, was in the vo- doing voice work in the Smurfs films, as well as From Up on Poppy Hill, the English language version. He would also provide the uh, in the UK U.S. version of one of the voices in. The Pirates Band of Misfits starred as uh, Charlie Brewster in the remake of Fright Night, a really unnecessary remake, but he was good in it. Um, we already mentioned Star Trek in the Darkness. Also looked for films that were fascinating and not necessarily, I mean, he had the big blockbuster with Star Trek and Terminator, but was looking for interesting scripts with interesting directors. He uh, played a kind of a, a hanger-on vampire in the Jim Jarmusch film Only Lovers Left Alive. Um, was in the film version of Shakespeare's Cymbeline with Ethan Hawke and Dakota Johnson. Worked with Nicolas Cage and Paul Schrader in the uh, just mangled but interesting uh, espionage thriller Dying of the Light. Um, and then earlier this year, he starred as, uh, and, and not even the best performance, but a really solid one as one of the band members in the underrated thriller Green Room, of course, with uh, Patrick Stewart. Um, he had just finished post-production on a film called Thoroughbred, according to IMDb, and of course, uh, Star Trek Beyond will come out later this year, and according to reports, he has a, he had that uh, commitment already taken care of. So, uh, again, too early, and a fascinating career, and a, and a very interesting actor, and we raise a glass to Anton Yelchin. 
Okay, moving on to what is new in theaters this week. Uh, the best of the lot, and I hope uh, there's plenty of blockbusters out there. At first, it seemed like they weren't going to screen Independence Day for critics, but they did. Doesn't matter. Instead, here is a, here's some audio from the documentary Art Bastard, which is about uh, New York artist Robert Senadella. Give this a listen. You see that policeman with a dog's head, and then the dog with a policeman's head. I was trying to make the point that something was wrong. Bob was really a traditional painter. He understood the basics. George Gross said, there's no such thing as a line in nature. That's all in our head. Pop art came in. It was a whole different world now. Art became something that had nothing to do with reality. My art has a lot to do with the energy of the city. The city was reality. I had a number of things that I wish weren't true. I came to a point where I decided not to be a tragic figure. I didn't graduate from high school. I was illegitimate. But in the end, hey, I have my art. Mediocrity deciding the fate of genius. It had to do with money. I was getting a lot of my anger out. In the 60s, I made a target. This is propaganda. Artist Robert Sinadella has sparked quite a controversy in New York City. Bob's a pain in the ass. That's why I'm doing this right now, because Bob's a pain in the ass. They would never show Bob stuff. There's just too many thoughtful things going on. And we live in a society that doesn't like to think. Money and art have nothing to do with each other. You can bastardize everything else in your life, but if you compromise with your art, why, why be an artist? One of the reasons why I played the trailer for you, besides the fact that you get an idea of what it's like, but uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about this film was hearing this this senior, this man who's uh, an elder statesman of the New York art scene, uh, speak his mind uh, and and how art is. Uh, ah. <laughs> I guess just the fact that I wish more artists thought the way he did. Um, and of course, that the, the difference between art and commerce, art and money, art and business—it's um, the work is really good. I enjoy it, um, it and it's fun. Of course, to see these moments of him waving an artistic middle finger at the New York art scene, uh, especially with pop art, and uh, the controversy they talk about is a a, uh, a painting that wasn't hung up in a gallery. It was uh, Santa, Cla Santa Claus on a Crucifix. So um, it reminds me of a joke that I once did in a newsroom. See me on the street sometime and I'll tell you about it. Uh, but it's interesting art and uh, and it's a fascinating guy. And uh, there there are artists like this around and hopefully uh, this is, of course, a film that uh, hopefully more people will check out and more people will check out his work. And I think we'd be all the better for it. So anyway, the, I think the film to see this week, if the lines at the blockbuster are uh, too long, and even if they aren't, go check out Art Bastard. This is playing at the Art Cinema on the north side of town. A couple of films that are still in theaters and I didn't get a chance to see last week, but I did see. One is the documentary called Dark Horse, which is about the racehorse Dream Alliance and his uh, rise and fall and rise again. Um, on paper, it... it 
feels like a horse feature film that we've seen countless times, whether it is Flicka or uh, Dreamer or even Racing Stripes, even though that's about a zebra. Um, in this case, uh, in a small farming town in Wales, a bunch of people pool their money together to get to to get a racehorse out. And uh, a lot of talking heads by, by just down-home interesting people. Um, but there are ups and downs that we have seen in feature stories, but the difference is, um, it's a, one, it actually happened, obviously, and two, um, we get more of the insight from the people and uh, yes, the horse is a character, but not nearly as big a character as it would be in a feature film. So anyway, that is still out in theaters. Go check that out. Also in theaters this week, the Sosi family uh, this past Monday finally got to see Finding Dory. And uh, my daughter really enjoyed it. My wife said it was fine. And I also think it is fine. It, I, I lump it in the same category as Monsters University. Uh, was it necessary? No, is it better than the first? Not even close, but it was it was fun to see and hear these characters again. Ellen DeGeneres, of course, and Albert Brooks. Uh, Ed O'Neill provides one of the, probably the best of the new voices. There are a few new voices, including Ty Burrell and uh, Diane Keaton and Eugene Levy. Um, and, and, and touching, but not nearly as touching as the original. And I should know, I watched it more times than anybody sh- probably should, because that's what my daughter watched. That and Monsters, Inc., several times for months on end when she was a toddler. So anyway, that is still out in theaters. And of course we talked about it last week. Um, Okay. Moving on into the midnight movies and the art houses, of course, and this all depends of course on when you're listening to this program. But uh, of course, uh, Saturday night at midnight is the quote along sing along edition of Monty Python and the Holy Grail at the Keystone Art Cinemas. Uh, next week, July 1st and 2nd at midnight is the 30th anniversary of Labyrinth and July 8th and 9th. Of course, this is Spinal Tap, July 15th and 16th, Roadhouse, and July 22nd and 23rd on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Over at the IMA as a part of their summer movie series on on Friday, July 1st, Remember the Titans. And uh, that is sold out. Sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, But apparently there are still tickets on Friday, July 8th for the Iron Giant. The rest, uh, gosh, Roman Holiday, the Swayze Double Feature, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Casablanca, and West Side Story, and The Princess Bride are all sold out. So you still have tickets. You still have a chance to see The Iron Giant on July 8th and um, Moulin Rouge on August 5th. Over at the Art Craft Theater, uh, again, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, June 25th at 2 and 7.30 p.m., the first Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, July 8th and 9th, Labyrinth, um, July 14th, Thursday at 2 p.m., Ma and Pa Kettle at Home. Um, July 15th and 16th, 2 and 7.30 p.m., Ma and Pa Kettle at Home. July 22nd and 23rd, 2 and 7.30 p.m., Jurassic Park. And then Tuesday, July 5th at 10 a.m. from 1988, The Land Before Time. Over at the Tibbs Drive-In uh, this weekend, on one screen, you have Independence Day Resurgence as well as X-Men Apocalypse. Okay, both Fox films, both sci-fi fantasy. Uh, Screen 2, Central Intelligence, along with The Conjuring 2. Uh, Screen 3, Finding Dory, as well as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Out of Shadows. Screen 4, The Shallows, followed by Now You See Me 2. And over at the Skyline Drive-In in in Shelbyville, um, next week, this weekend... 
You have Finding Dory at 9.30 p.m. At 11.30 p.m., Alice Through the Looking Glass. And then at 1.30 a.m., because these are the, these are the fascinating ones, folks. And, of course, you're waiting for your kids to fall asleep. From 1978, Smokey and the Good Time Outlaws, also known as Smokey and the Outlaw Women, with Jesse Turner, Dennis Fimple, and Slim Pickens. So a knockoff of Smokey and the Bandit with more women. Um, if you're into those type of pictures. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, last week was the anniversary of the, uh, the introduction of Son of Spanguli on Chicago television. Uh, that was gosh, 1979. Uh, last week was the anniversary. So with that in mind, a couple, I should also mention, uh, on Spanguli, Tonight, Saturday night, depending on when you're listening to this, at 10 p.m. on MeTV, they are showing The Island of Lost Souls. And one other reminder, sorry. Um, June 28th at your local Fathom Theater, Fathom Events, so check your check Fathom local theater listings. But on June 28th, Rift Tracks, it's a Mystery Science Theater reunion on June 28th. The replay will be on July 12th. You'll probably see the Sosi family on July 12th. And I believe they're showing the Italian Jaws knockoff with Vic Morrow, The Last Shark. Okay, now back to Svanguli. Last week was his anniversary. And uh, with that in mind, we'll play as much as we can until the end of the program. Here is my epic chat with Rich Coase. You grew up in Chicago, right? Yeah, I've pretty much spent my whole life here in Chicago, my whole life and even my whole career. Uh, I, I was born in Chicago, and about four years after that, we moved to some suburbs of Chicago. Such as? Uh, around the Morton Grove Niles area. As a kid, what, what horror show host did you watch? I barely got in on one of the originals. I was very young, but I remember seeing at some relatives' houses when we were there late, uh, Marvin, Terry Bennett, who hosted Chicago's Shock Theater. Now, back then, of course, that was the name. Shock was the name of the universal movie package that was released all over the country. Mm-hmm. And that was where Vampira was first running her stuff out in L.A., and in Chicago, it happened to go to uh, WBKB-TV, where uh, Terry Bennett worked, and he became Marvin, the sort of uh, beatnik-type ghoul host. Would that lay the foundation for uh, Jerry G. Bishop? Um, not so much, because I think Jerry was already out of town by then and, and uh, you know, working his way through radio in various cities, radio and TV. How old were you when you started watching Jerry? Uh, I was actually just about to enter uh, college. And uh, what were your impressions of watching uh, Jerry work on television? Well, first of all, I'd been a fan of his anyway from his radio work. He'd been on the air doing morning radio and such uh, for many years already before he even hit that. And uh, I was a fan of his, so I you know, was tuning in just because I heard that he was doing some funny shtick in between things as just a voiceover announcer for the horror movies on Friday night. And as it was developing along, you know, I, I enjoyed the character that he was portraying as well and how he was kind of you know, positioning himself between the various segments of the movie. Did he ever tell you how he developed the character? Uh, he he kind of was taking a tip from the famous Ernie Anderson, Goulardi, uh-huh. who was on opposite him on TV when he was working in Cleveland. But uh, Goulardi was another sort of beatnik-type character, and uh, Jerry decided to kind of update that and make it a sort of hippie ghoul. And so he kind of got, got the nod from that, and then uh, 
he always said that his his Spanguli accent was kind of Bela Lugosi crossed with Yiddish. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was even funnier was he always described my accent as a combination of Bela Lugosi and Lawrence Welk. <laughs> so, so Berwin really loves you. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, They're much closer ties than I thought. Well, it's interesting because looking back, because um, I asked the question I had earlier about the foundation for Jerry is uh, because of the hippie persona, and then you mentioned the beatnik persona. Um, I, it, it was interesting as a as a youngster um, with my local horror show host. I, I grew up in Michigan, and ours was uh, Sir Graves Gastly out of Detroit. Mm-hmm is on the surface it was scary looking but then i realized watch looking back he 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 did a, a segment in drag he did a segment german he would uh, paint his face you know paint a face on his chin and uh-huh. be filmed upside down and he showed kids pictures and in uh-huh. your case looking at the early pictures by the way there's somebody here at work who grew up in elkhart and she wanted me to tell you you scared her when she was a little kid <laughs> I've heard that from a few people You're here right. and there. <laughs> but but the fact is you you know, you had maybe the, the exterior was scary, but you know, you're cracking jokes the entire time. And I thought with especially with Jerry's, it's a hippie. He's not a vampire or a ghoul or a zombie. It's you know, it's a hippie that uh that delivers one liners. Right, exactly. I think part of it is just that the the characters uh, I always said, you know, Pete, there were always been people who said, oh, You should try to act more scary. <laughs> and I've often said, well, the only people who will be scared by that are, you know, kids under the age of five. It's not very effective. If you're trying to act scary and, you know, people are wanted, they're going to go, oh, come on. Whereas uh, making the character kind of comic relief to the horror is what seems to be what works. And for the most part, that's what most of the very successful hosts have done, whether it be tongue-in-cheek or you know, just blatant, you know, goofballs like myself. What did you think the first time you saw Count Floyd on SCTV? I I thought he was hilarious. It was funny because I had actually seen Joe Flaherty, who played Count Floyd, live at Second City while he was in his tenure here in Chicago. It was right after I got out of high school, in fact. And uh, I thought he was a very funny guy to begin with. But then when I saw that, I thought it was really hilarious. And one of the things that somebody brought up is, you know, uh, he obviously was still doing Second City here in town. He hadn't gone back up to uh, Canada during the time that Jerry was doing his Spengoolie stuff here. So it, it seems like, you know, a little bit of that might have been, you know, <laughs> added into his whole uh, Count Floyd persona. The the idea of, you know, running movies that maybe weren't quite, you know, what you would want to run during the time. Because Jerry had a few that were like, wait a minute, this isn't really a horror movie. and. Yeah, I thought Count Floyd was very, very funny. Now, I know you started sending jokes to Jerry. Um, what Do you remember the first one he ever used? I I think it was something like, <laughs> you'll love this one. Okay. What do you call a grave in Russia? A what? A communist plot. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I think that's being used on Fox News today, so it's all right. <laughs> well, yes, it's right up their alley there. Yeah, so at first I was just sending him random jokes that I thought he could use because he was, you know, actually soliciting them from viewers. And then uh, I, I, you know, let him know a little bit about what I was doing, that I was a broadcasting student. And I actually wrote something that was more specific for him. And he started to kind of request specific things like, can you do a parody of such and such commercial or uh, something like that? So it, it got into more long form things than just separate jokes. And how long before he invited you into the studio to work? 
I would say it was at the most about a year, probably a little less than that. And uh, he had me come in, and I ended up going in there, and he'd say, hey, can you do this voice for me off camera? And, uh, you know, I did some artwork that he needed for the show. Uh, one of the guys working there then would jokingly refer to me as Jerry's art director. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he had me going with him and, and doing his public appearances with him as various characters and such. And, uh, you know, and it became pretty much he was trying to work it out so that I would have a full-time job at Channel 32, but before that happened, his uh, Spengoolie show was canceled. So, Well, before the birth of Sun, what did your parents hope you would be doing at this time? You know, I don't know that they had any specific uh, direction that they were hoping I would go in. My dad worked in sheet metal and ventilation, and I think he pretty much knew that I wasn't planning to go in that direction. They knew that I, I liked radio, and I think they they kind of thought that I would go in, in that direction in broadcasting, but I don't know that they expected me to go into television as well. Well, how did, uh, how did Son of Spengoolie come about? Uh, basically, what happened was there was a time in between <laughs> when I became Son of Spengoolie and when Jerry stopped being Spengoolie that uh, one of the guys that was a friend of Jerry's at one of the local stations had called him and said, you know, you should just do Spengoolie just as a summer fill-in thing for us here. And they talked about it a little bit, and Jerry was like, well, I don't know that I want to dress up in this stuff again. And he <laughs> said, you know what? He said, he said to me, why don't you could be like son of Spengoolie, and then you and I can write and, you know, produce the thing together. And I was like, sure, that would be cool. And then we talked about it, kicked it around, had some false starts on it, and nothing ever really happened with it. And then a couple of years down the road, when Jerry was going to head out to San Diego to do radio and TV there, he said, well, you know, what are you planning on doing now? Because somebody else I had been working with, uh, Dick Orkin, do you know him? Uh, I've Very heard famous, the name. Uh, famous radio guy who did radio commercials and did a lot of uh, famous uh, modern radio serials like Chicken Man. Oh, right. Tooth Fairy. Yeah. Uh, I'd been working with him, and he went off to L.A., and now Jerry was leaving, and he said, well, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, maybe I'll try to pitch some local station on a, on a TV show and see if I can make any inroads there. And he said, I tell you what, if you want to try to do the Son of Spengoolie thing, you have my blessing. And so he kind of handed that off to me and which was very flattering that he would, you know, take the character that he had created and kind of, you know, turned it over to me more or less. Now, for those who 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 don't go on YouTube, what what was the besides the look? What was the biggest difference between uh Jerry's uh character and yours? Uh geez, let's see. Well, Jerry used to play the guitar and sing. And uh, I cannot play the guitar well enough to do that. We thank you for that. <laughs> yes, yeah, anytime. Believe me, you wouldn't want to sit through that. Um, but basically, it's the same type of character, you know, kind of mm -hmm. wisecracking. And uh, I think Jerry's character, I don't know how to put this better, it was a little more aggressive than mine. And, and I think that, you know, Sven is more... Uh, the one that I'm doing is more the Jack Benny character who is set upon by the other characters and such around him, whereas Jerry was more, you know, the wise guy who was, you know, dealing with the others or something. And, yeah, so you're the chicken butt of the jokes. Yes, exactly. Well put. Thank you. Uh, and when did the – was the chickens uh, your creation, the, 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 fly, the flying chickens? Oh, no, that that went back to Jerry. Okay. Uh, you know, the famous old vaudeville prop of a rubber chicken. Right. Uh, he decided that whenever he would uh, do some bad joke, which was pretty often, 
<laughs> he would be pelted with those rather than tomatoes or something like that, or bricks, which would not have been pleasant. Or or the giant hook. The giant hook, yes. That would have been much more difficult to have one of the stagehands maneuvering all the time. you got to also spread the fun to people, because if there's one thing people always request is, can I come and throw chickens at you? Gee, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I think I'm at the bottom of the scroll right now. <laughs> I see. <laughs> My first uh, viewing of you, of course, was on uh, was syndicated on Channel 50 in Detroit, and this was in the early 80s. How did the syndication uh, come about? Well, after... Uh, there had been various shows that had run back and forth. They had tried to run The Ghoul from one of uh, the stations that was owned by uh, oh, which which company was it at the time? Kaiser, I guess, Kaiser Broadcasting. And they actually bumped Jerry Spanguli off so that they could run The Ghoul. And he was not well accepted in Chicago because <laughs> compared to Jerry's character, this was you know an interloper. And he didn't make any friends because we first started out saying, I'm like, yeah, we got rid of that bum, Svengoolie. Ooh, uh, yeah, nice work. Nice. <laughs> but uh, based on that and the fact that there was a guy in power at our Chicago station who was running all the field stations, they were field stations by then. Right. Uh, he really believed in what I was doing, and he wanted to get it on the other channels. And the funny thing was that we ended up on five different channels in different cities. But a lot of the stations, for some reason, felt that this was being forced on them, so they would not promote it, and uh, you know they would do nothing to help us out. And now, years later, I hear from people who watched me in the various cities, and they were like, oh, yeah, everybody used to watch that. And I had no idea that there was an audience watching me back then. And they say, oh, you went to Chicago after this. And I said, no, actually, I was in <laughs> Chicago the whole time. And we would customize the opens and closes especially so that it would look like, you know, it was something, you know, with jokes playing off that specific city. It was kind of a pain because we'd have to reshoot every open and every close for each city, mm -hmm. and I'd have to rewrite it so that I would get in local jokes. What were the other cities? Uh, we were in San Francisco, Boston, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Chicago. I remember because you made a crack on Bill Kennedy, who hosted the uh, the local show, the right, local movie sure. show in the afternoon. And I remember calling Channel 50 and asking about you, and they told me that you were based out of Chicago, and I didn't believe them. No, because like, because you mentioned Bill Kennedy, how do, you know? Of course you know. So, <laughs> yeah. well, it was funny because when we were going to do it, I asked each one of the stations, "Can you just send me a bunch of people, like a weatherman that I can make fun of? Uh, you know, various locations in the city, sports teams, uh, and out of the stations, a couple of them sent really detailed stuff, and the rest were like, "Yeah, never mind." Okay, I have to ask, how was Detroit's treatment of you? Detroit was uh, fairly weak. <laughs> Sorry. They they sent like just a little bit of information and a Detroit Pistons uh basketball jersey. <laughs> you still have it? I think I I believe I gave it to one of my brothers after the show <laughs> was over. How so how long did this uh did this last the the syndication? It varied in the cities from like about uh, 6 months to a year. Okay. And a lot of that was because they just, you know, they didn't promote it and they felt like it was not, you know, it was not something they wanted to do. It wasn't their production. At one point, we actually went to Philadelphia and shot on their set. They built a whole set just for me to shoot on. Wow. And everybody there, for the most part, was 
not cooperative. You know, we were doing different bits and stuff. We ran a, a bit that was pretty famous that we did, uh, Mr. Robber's Neighborhood. Right. Uh, where, uh, you know, I'm supposed to look at Fred Rogers as a criminal who breaks into people's homes. That's why he changes his shoes so they can't hear him. Right. And he was talking about how he had a good sharp knife to do something with. And one of the the engineers there goes, oh, that's nice, teaching kids to use knives. Wow, this coming from Philly fans that cheer when Santa Claus get uh, taken off on a stretcher at Eagles games. Yikes. <laughs> well, what can I tell you? So it was an uphill battle in most of those places, and I think that's why it didn't last, in, a, in especially in a couple of those cities. Well, from, from a kid's standpoint, it felt like it was on longer, and I, I mean that as a compliment. And I think also because of the test of time, and there's no inter- internet, and it was you had to be there for that time, unless you had a, v, a VHS or Betamax, you had to be there for that time to see the show. Exactly. Yeah, that that was it. You know, uh, that's why I hear these people now who see the old clips and they go, wait, I remember when this was on in, in you know, San Francisco or whatever. Yep. It, it's it's quite a I think San Francisco was the city that we were in the longest, and that was like a full year. By then, all the others had dropped out. Some of the other characters that you had now, was was Durwood from the Jerry era or was and, and you inherited him? Yes, Derwood, the ventriloquist puppet, was from Jerry's era, and uh, to this day, <laughs> I wish he hadn't picked such a high falsetto voice, which he could do much better than I could, because I felt he should still have a similar type voice. You know, I didn't want to change the voice on it, but it's much harder for me to do. Uh, Tombstone was a, a character based on, really, he had a female skull named Zelda, and, uh, again, I, I didn't want to do the exact same thing with that, so uh, we created Tombstone. His name originally was Zalman T. Tombstone, Jr., and it was a playoff on the old Billy Saluga character, Raymond J. Johnson, oh, Jr., that was very popular right. at that time. Yeah, yeah. And Tombstone even had his own little litany, you know, like, like the, he doesn't have to call me Johnson type thing, you know. But you can call me Toomey, or you could call me, and it, it, we did that at a while at the beginning. After all, I was like... I think people would be sick of this. Let's just run it. I always imagined Tombstone sounded like if if Bob Dylan and the Kingfish had a child. Yeah, that's pretty close. I'd okay. say, definitely. Tell us about the evolution of Kerwin. Kerwin, yeah. Well, we, we've had a series of different sort of uh, puppet-like assistants doing the mail. The first was our piano player, Doug. Right. And he, he was actually a live person. <laughs> uh, but he often couldn't stay around long enough because he, he is, in actuality, a, a working musician who constantly has different gigs all over the place. So he couldn't wait around until we got, you know, after we did the song to do the music. Uh, we did the music bits and then uh, we'd have to wait to do the mail after we did several other things, and he often couldn't stay around. So we said, well, let's try some things. And we had uh, a bat whose voice was like a sort of processed high-tone thing. Right. And it was so annoying that one of the bosses in charge here actually said, I want you to get rid of it. And we had to actually do a bit where he was fired because he couldn't stand that voice. <laughs> And then we, for a while, we had a uh, pterodactyl who was a disc jockey who was the assistant, and uh, a dinosaur, I believe. We're very into reptiles at times. I see. And finally, we had a spider for a while, and because he had eight legs, he had eight different voices, and for some reason, that just didn't work at all. But finally, uh, someone from our kids' show, Green Screen Adventures, a young lady named Jessica Hope Carlton, who uh, is very adept at building puppets, kind of as a surprise, uh, cooperating with my uh, director, 
came up with this. She used like one of those sort of alligator type things you buy at the zoo. It's like a head on a stick, and you pull a little, little trigger to make it talk and move the mouth. And she combined that with the body of a rubber chicken and created Kerwin as a prehistoric rubber chicken. Who sounds like Jerry Lewis. Who, yeah, well, when I first looked at him, when they gave him to me, he had these kind of goofy eyes and funny teeth. And for some reason, it struck me that he sort of looked like very young Jerry Lewis. So that was why he got the voice. It was kind of like this. Do you also not bring up Dean Martin around him? <laughs> no, I constantly bring up Dean Martin <laughs> just to make him angry. So speaking of Doug, how do you select the music for the shows? You know, it's, I've often been asked by one of my coworkers, what are you thinking? Because <laughs> I'll say, you know, I want to do something, you know, do, this is like flying to the moon. And he'll say, okay, uh, and he comes up with all these songs with moon in it, and then I'll go, I know, and, and come up with some song that has no word moon in it, and he'll be like, wait, I don't get it, but there's some way that I can tie in certain lyrics that sound exactly like, you know, what, what the originals are that has something that has something to do with the movie. And, and how did you meet Doug? Doug and I went to high school together, actually. We ah. were in band together in high school. And uh, we became friends and and just hung around together. And uh, when I started doing TV shows, I figured, you know, it would be great to have him help out. What did you play? I played trombone. <laughs> it's been a long time since I played trombone, so oh, we... please don't ask me to do a solo. Oh, no, that's right. Well, we, we live in the land of J.J. Johnson. We wouldn't ask you to do that. Well, but, certainly, uh... yeah. But I also I also imagined you as Woody Allen in Take the Money and Run, where you played the cello, but you also had to drag the chair during the parade. <laughs> Let me tell you, being a trombone player in a parade is not fun because you're right at the front of the band, because obviously because of the slide action, they put you there, and also... When you're playing, you don't get to look down and see if there's anything dropped by the horses that were earlier in the parade. <laughs> that was one of the biggest hazards. And I always thought that doing marching band out on a field was one of the most unmusical experiences ever because you think you're doing these formations and stuff, and half the instruments turn away from the stands while they're walking in you know, some pattern, and that means they can't hear that part of the music. So <laughs> it's like you're not hearing the whole you know, thing like you do in a concert. What's the deal? How did... Jerry and you come up with all of those sound clips? Well, with Jerry, it was a matter of, you know, he used them in his radio stuff. Mm-hmm. And he had a huge library of, of uh, sound effects and little sound bites and things that they, he passed a lot of on to me. And actually, it was the same thing with me because I wanted to be in radio and I also did that. I mean, maybe it's not as common anymore, but a lot of disc jockeys used to use little, you know, sure. these little sound bites, uh, little, you know, cart-type reactions and because they were on audio carts that you'd throw into the machine. And uh, you just built up this whole library, and of course, once I started here, a lot of the guys had suggestions for things or would find something in a show or in a commercial and say, oh, you know, you should really use this, so... We've got it all. It's all now computerized, obviously, like everything else. It's all digital, and it's in a little uh, a little machine that we can just call up a number and hit. How many films or how many episodes do you record in one batch? Uh, it varies. We've done as many as nine. Wow. Which is, you know, we're in the studio from noon until 9 o'clock every night when we do these. Okay. And that's a long haul. Believe me, being in that makeup for that length of time, not pleasant. But, uh, yeah, we've done as many as nine, and a comfortable range is usually five, I would say. Okay. Because that gives us a, a little, you know, easier time of it. 
and we're not like under the gun like you know Lucy in the candy factory. <laughs> and when you're selecting the films, is there a pattern? I mean, you know, sci-fi, horror, monster movie, killer movie. Is is there a pattern of any kind? Well, it's not so much a pattern. Uh, my idea usually is to try to vary it somewhat because we do get people who will often complain about the fact that we're doing uh, you know too many mummy movies all at once or too many Frankenstein movies. And, you know, to me, it's like you're complaining about these universal classics. Okay, whatever. <laughs> but I try to, to vary them when I can. And also, there are certain ones that we have only a certain time window for. So we have to make sure that they can air only during, like, we've had movies that we can only run during one month. Jeez. So we have to, you know, make sure it gets in then. So a lot of times it depends on what the contractual window is, the window of time that we can fit the movies in, and, you know, what what's available to us at what times. Right off the top of your head, what are some of your favorite and least favorite films that you've shown over the years? No, favorite ones, uh, definitely Bride of Frankenstein. I do like uh, House of Frankenstein. I got to run Nightmare on Elm Street, which I really enjoyed, and wow. Halloween, the originals. I uh, really enjoyed those. Ones that I don't like as well, eh, there's quite a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may have mentioned to you before the uh, Midnight Movie Massacre, which was an absolutely terrible movie. There was one movie that I often cannot remember, A Track of the Vampire, oh. which is so bad and boring. It's a movie where half of it was shot in California and the other half was shot in Yugoslavia, and neither side knew what the other side was doing. <laughs> And it was so bad that when I was at Channel 32, we actually intercut it with with a bunch of other things. And we did one whole segment that was kind of, you know, Spence around where it had changed. And suddenly the, the woman – it's a scene where this woman is being chased all through the city and into the ocean by the vampire. Mm-hmm. And with my redubbing, it became the fact that she was supposed to show up for swim team practice and didn't want to, and that was the coach running after her. <laughs> and at times, there was like a bald lifeguard who showed up, so naturally his voice became that of Curly Howard from the Three Stooges. Of course. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was one of the really, really awful ones. I would say, does is it the quality of the film that gets it a a Spence around treatment, or have you? I, I think I remember once you did it with even with Night of the Living Dead. We, we did separate scenes from that. A lot of times I'll lift scenes and it, so it doesn't interflow, I mean interrupt the flow of the movie or, you know, ruin people's enjoyment of the actual movie itself. If it's a really bad movie, a lot of times the only way to save it is to do something like add some sound effects to it along the way. Um, now, I know there was one of the writers from Mystery Science Theater 3000 grew up in Chicago. Have you heard, have you made contact with any of those guys before? No, I've never been in contact with them. I've heard from other people that, you know, they've they've done little shout-outs to Sven in some of their shows that um, one guy said he went to some convention and dressed as me and ran into one of them, and the guy immediately said, hey, your son is Sven Gooley. Okay. <laughs> they, they know about it. And I remember reading an article in the Chicago Tribune where they were talking to, to a couple of the guys, and they said, you know, we weren't the type of guys who were trying to, you know, pick up, uh, cousin Brucey on the radio from New York or whatever like that. We were trying to watch people like Ray Rayner, who did a morning kids show here in Chicago, and Sven Gulli. So they were aware of, of both, and uh, they they obviously saw both Jerry Sven Gulli and my son of Sven Gulli. Have you ever talked to any of the filmmakers or actors whose movies you've uh, you've aired? 
Very rarely. Uh, you know, a lot of them right now, well, course, a lot of the universal folks, a lot of them not are around. Uh, although I did hear, uh, I've got a couple guys who do a great website called Terror from Beyond the Daves. And it's, uh, they have a blog about different horror hosts and horror-oriented things. And they both are guys who grew up watching me and are big fans. And now, especially with our national exposure, when they go to conventions, they, they get a lot of feedback about the show from people. They ran into Julie Adams, who was the beautiful woman in the white bathing suit in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. And she was just thrilled to hear that, you know, we show her our, her movie on our program. The same thing with Tippy Hedren from The Birds. Sure. She, we ran at, uh, The Birds here in Chicago and won the time slot. Which was just you know incredible for you know it's like Sven Gulli winning the time slot. Good grief! <laughs> but she was another one who was just thrilled to hear that we were running that show on free broadcast TV since it hasn't appeared on that very much, and it, it's just really great to you know get even these secondhand things. I did meet uh, Robert England, Freddy Krueger, and it turns out he's a big fan of my show. He's been watching it out in California now. And he's had a lot of very complimentary things to say about it, which is really nice. Lance Henriksen mm-hmm. met up with him. He's a very nice guy. It was a lot of fun and seemed to enjoy the show. Um, we, we ran him in Pumpkinhead uh, a couple yes. times. Mm-hmm. And I think Piranha 2 as well. So. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> How often are you allowed in Berwyn? I'm allowed there any darn time I want to be there. <laughs> Do you Let have the key to the you. city yet? They don't even need a key. I've got like a key card. It just lets me in and out. It's not a problem. Actually, yeah, it's funny because just about, I'd say, 95% of the people in Berwyn love that we do the stuff that we do about that city. And they know it's just jokes. Uh, for a while, they had a mayor who was, who was you know, oh, you know, we we don't want to be the butt of Sven Gulli's jokes. And yet any time I'd show up there, he always made sure he was there to get a picture shaking my hand. Politician. Yes. And... uh and, and occasionally it's like the, the people who are like, oh, you know, you shouldn't make fun of our town. But uh, the thing is, every time I've done a radio interview or TV interview and people have asked about Berwyn, I've always, you know, stated what I just told you and the fact that it's a really nice suburb. The people are very nice there. They're all hardworking people. And now they're trying to be, you know, a little more upscale and they're adding more arts and, and things. And, uh, you know, God bless them. It's it's a nice place, and it also has my favorite horror collectibles store, a place called Horror Bolts, which has a real nice stock of all sorts of things. How did you pick Berwyn out of all the all the towns for the for the bit? That was Jerry's doing. Uh, back when he was trying to figure it out, um, he had always uh, had uh, when he was in Cleveland. Uh, Goulardi, Ernie Anderson made fun of a suburb called Parma. And when he came here, he had that in mind. And he also, at that time, Rona Martin's Laugh-In was kind of winding down, uh-huh. and they were making fun of beautiful downtown Burbank, as was Johnny Carson. And he thought, well, we, we need to do something like that. We can make small-town jokes about that. It would be funny. And he was trying to decide on something, and he ended up having a sponsor that was from the Berwyn area. And when he went there, it, it seemed like the one street, Ogden Avenue, was all – <laughs> savings and loans and used car lots. And then he found out that they had the yearly parade in honor of mushrooms, the Hobie Parade. <laughs> Hobie is Czech for a mushroom. Yeah. And he decided this would be a good place to, to use as our uh, our city that we uh, kind of poke fun at. 
Well, it has a it has a flow to it compared to say Downers Grove, Westmont, or Wheaton. Yeah, you can't go like Cicero. It doesn't flow as well as Berwin. Is 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 there a film that you've always wanted to show and had not have not had a chance to do yet? Yes, Fiend Without a Face. Do you know that movie? Um, the French film, right? No. Oh no, no I'm no. thinking I'm thinking of Eyes Without a Face. I'm sorry. No, no. This sorry. is this is like a, a cheapo, I think it's an American international one. Okay. Where there's something invisible that is killing people and they're not sure what it is. And at some point they find a way to make them visible and it turns out there are these brains with spinal columns that kinda of like inch along. They were done with stop motion animation. And when they are fighting with them, when you shoot one, it makes a noise like a whoopee cushion, kind of, and and lets loose the sort of raspberry jelly type stuff. Is this the way the flying brains with the eyes? Or uh, am I thinking of something else? It, it, you may be confusing it with uh, the brain from Planet Eros. Ah, okay, all right. <laughs> but these, you would remember these right away because they're okay. they're smaller brains, about the size of a human brain, but they had this sort of spinal column, and they inch along like an inchworm using that. And they can also, like, leap through the air. Well, this is my YouTube project for the day. That's good. All right, yes, you'll enjoy it, believe me. Now, now how long have you been with the U? I have been here since 1995, at WCIU, and then as we've added more stations, uh, my shows have gone on to the various stations, and including now our network, MeTV. How did the MeTV deal come about? Because of the great success we had here in town, when the U first went on, it was kind of a hybrid of, of what MeTV is, and uh, also a little more modern uh, type programming that we would uh, manage to get. And as we went along, uh, my boss, Neil Sabin, who was like a genius, <laughs> had uh, <laughs> noticed that uh, like Nick at Night and TV Land were changing dramatically. And they weren't what they originally were supposed to be, you know, with this classic TV stuff. And he had this idea of making me t the Me TV station, which we did first locally here. And he felt that there was viability to that across the country since, you know, people weren't really getting that presented the way that we present it, and uh, he managed to start, you know, start the wheels in motion, and now we're in almost 80% of the country. Cool. And it, it's especially amazing that it happened in about a year's time to have that kind of progress. really says a lot for what Neil could do and, and what the MeTV nation, uh, National Network can do. I'd say you could call those other syndicated cities from the 80s and blow raspberries at them, but they're probably not there anymore or, or probably dead. Oh, you never know. Yeah, most of the people involved have probably moved on and uh, are not quite around anymore or, yeah, have been deposed. Knowing the nature of television, they probably lost their jobs. And... They're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. Yes, and I'll shed a tear for them like that Indian standing <laughs> alongside the highway. For me, TV, is it strictly universal films? Right now it is, yeah. Uh, we have a, a really nice contract with Universal, and we're actually working on an extension of that for the future that would add in even more films for us. And we're hoping that that'll happen. And this is really, you know, the first broadcast TV national uh, exposure for these universal horror films since many, many years ago. Which I think is a, a really cool thing. I know uh, I, recently there's been films like The Mole People, which I haven't seen in a long, long time. And I know... Uh, uh, the uh, the horror film with uh, Dirk Benedict and and uh, Strother Martin. I mean, those are ones I can't even think of the yeah, last time you're I talking saw about <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's cool that you 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 look for films that have not seen the light of day in a long time. 
Yeah, and I think it, it's really an education for a lot of people because there is a generation that hasn't seen these. We, when we were kids, it seemed like they ran them much more on television, and now if they run at all, they've run on cable as opposed to on you know actual broadcast TV. So the fact that we're kind of you know reintroducing these to a lot of people who maybe never saw them before is, is really great. It's nice to continue the universal legacy. And and also from a you talk about from an educational standpoint, I love when you do a segment based on who these actors appeared in, you know, what other films they've appeared in, what the director has worked on. You know, when when my daughter saw that Bella Lugosi played the Frankenstein monster, that that blew her lid a little bit in a good way. Uh, sure, yeah, there are things that people really don't expect, uh, or you know, they don't know about connections to various things, like the people who ended up playing some other part on on a TV series years later that they had no idea that that ever happened. So it's very cool to be able to, you know, make these connections for people or just remind people, you know, this guy also did this. And at times it's it's really a tribute to the versatility of the actors, and, and it's great to show that they had a wide enough range to do so many things. You're a walking IMDb, sir. Yeah, no, I'm sitting right now. Actually. <laughs> and I know also um, you've you've also been showing comedy shows, and, and don't listen to the internet. There's nothing wrong with that. With showing, you know, I know you've done the Three Stooges marathon and Abbott and Costello, and yeah, uh, you know, well, most of the Abbott and Costello stuff we've shown still has a horror element to it. It's not, you know, we're not just showing you know hit the ice or something like right. that. Right. Abbott and Costello meet the mummy or or you know Frankenstein or whoever. Uh, we've thrown in a few things here and there. Yeah, well, you know, Ghost and Mr. Chicken, there's still like a horror sure. scare element to that. If anything, you know, we've run some Marx Brothers movies, and uh, that's mainly because I'm a big fan of the Marx Brothers. They were a big influence on me. And, uh, you know, I, again, I love when people are like, oh, this is wrong. You should be showing only scary things. Uh, and it's like, have you noticed that a great portion of my part of the show is comedy? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And we, we also like the, you know, you, you air it the same reason why dogs lick their elbows, because you can. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> and also, Thanks for saying elbows. Well, yes. Thank you for <laughs> saying elbows, too. Um and also, it's it's really cool that the, the show on MeTV, you've you kind of become an ambassador for local horror show hosts. It's a lost art. I mean, we have we have Sammy Terry popping up every every few months here in Indianapolis, but it, it's cool for you to give shout outs to cities that have had hosts, and you show other hosts, and even show old photos of Jerry and you. Um, it, it's it's a lost art, I think, for local television. Well, with the the way that uh, television has been going now in the TV economy, most local show, uh, stations do not do entertainment type shows. They're mainly, you know, if they have budgets. They're going to do news and sports and public affairs and an occasional magazine show, but you know, they're not going to do something that's strictly entertainment because, uh, according to them, it it doesn't generate enough money. To justify, you know, the studio time and editing time and everything like that. And when we first started here uh, locally, the people in charge of the station said, you know, well, maybe we're not going to make money on this, but it's an important part of TV and something that viewers really get an attachment to and make a connection with, and that's important to us. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, you know, we're, we're doing very well, and it's it's nice to see that people, you know, every every email I get from out of town, for the most part, will mention. We haven't had anything in town like this since, you know, in the 70s with, you know, Dr. 
bad teeth or something like that. So <laughs> there's always everybody's got a horror host they watch sometime in their life. It seems. Do you do you do shows strictly for me TV and then you do shows strictly for the you? We yeah we have um, some shows that that run basically well the ones that run on me TV right now also run on the U as like a week delay basis, but then on the U two we run some of the older ones that we have that we still have rights to or that are public domain, and I also do a Three Stooges show Stooge Palooza that runs on Saturday nights on our me two channel. So I was going to say how often do you get to appear on TV as Rich? Uh, every week. Okay. <laughs> Basically, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, I'm in the makeup, I'm out of the makeup, in the makeup, out of the makeup. Well, you, you're, you know, it, it keeps you young, maybe. Well, I don't know about that. Or but... young at heart. Okay, I'll go with that. <laughs> so so what's next for uh, for Spanguli? Uh Right now, I, it seems like we're just continuing to go to more and more of the uh, places in America. More and more uh, stations are picking up the MeTV network and getting better distribution of it. And a lot of them, we started out just over the air, and now it's going to cable as well in a lot of the cities and uh, wider distribution in in a lot of the cities. There are a lot of rumors about uh, out on the West Coast that uh, we're going to have more visibility out there. So uh, I think it's just a matter of the Sven show catching on in these various places, and then I think the next step after that is possibly starting to make public appearances all over the country, which should be fun. Well, you know, you have a place to crash in Indianapolis, that's for sure. Well, thanks, I appreciate that. Hi, this is Rich Coates, and I just wanted you to know that you're listening to Film Sociology on WFYI Indianapolis. It could have been in Berwyn, but it isn't. Well, hello there. I'm Sven Gulli from MeTV, and you're listening to Film Sociology on WFYI Indianapolis. If there's an Indianapolis, it means that he's like, you know, a military-type uh, person from Native America. Could you turn up the volume, please? You're, you're not going to hear me if you don't know. Hello there. I'm Sven Gulli from MeTV, and you're listening to Film Sociology on WFYI Indianapolis. FYI. F-Y-I, <laughs> and also, never mind. Hello there, this is Carwin, the prehistoric rubber chicken from the Svenguli Show on MeTV, and I wanted to remind you that you're listening to Film Sociosiology on WFYI Indianapolis, which is like Indian no place. Well, hello there. My name is Zamanty Tombstone from the Svengulet program on MeTV, and I wanted to advise you that you're listening to Film Sociology on WFYI Indianapolis. I flunked sociology, so <laughs> good luck. Silent Green is people! Zardoz has spoken. Once again, happy anniversary to Rich Coes and Spanguli. Thank you for entertaining us. So glad I got to see you on TV as a child and get to talk to you as as a grown-up. So go see a good movie. Don't forget, Island of Lost Souls is on MeTV Saturday night at 10 o'clock. Go see a good movie. Go see Art Bastard. You deserve it. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan. 